This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Imagine trying to help persecuted Christians in Sudan and ending up being persecuted yourself. That's what happened to my next guest, who was leading Voice of the Martyrs Ministry in Africa and found himself arrested, sentenced to life in prison, and caged up with cellmates whom he learned were members of the Islamic State. Peter Yashik spent 445 days in prison. Now he serves as Voice of the Martyrs Global Ambassador, and he is out with a very powerful book about what he went through. It is called Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Peter, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Janet. Thank you for the invitation to your show. Oh, thank you. Talk a little bit about your background as a Christian first. That's what really interested me as I was going through your book, because a lot of people have heard about your imprisonment, maybe not so much about your background. You actually are the son of a pastor. Your parents were actually monitored and interrogated by the secret police under communist Czechoslovakia. Can you talk a little bit about how your childhood shaped your own experience as a Christian? Absolutely. You know, I'm thankful for the fact that I uh, could grow up in a Christian family. Uh, You know, even though uh, we all know that uh, we cannot uh, inherit the kingdom of heaven, we have to be born into it. So uh, when I was about 15 years old, I was a freshman in high school, you know, I... uh, I came to the conclusion that I really wanted to commit uh, my life uh, to Jesus, and uh, that happened, you know, when I was in the Eastern Germany at the time, in the uh, summer youth camp, and that was the moment when I made this decision. And I, shortly after that, I asked my father, you know, to baptize me. And uh, quite shortly after that, uh, the persecution uh, in our family really started because uh, my father was a pastor in the official church, but of course, you know, the official church was quite closely monitored by secret police. Every church used to have one or two uh, secret co-workers of secret police who informed, you know, about any suspicious activity in the church. And uh, that's why my parents decided to work rather in the unofficial underground church, uh, which meant, uh, you know, a great uh, risk at the time. <clears throat> and my parents were organizing a discipleship training uh, for young people from various denominations. And I have to say that many of them were from no church at that time. They were just believers in Jesus. <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, this became uh, in the focus, in the viewfinder of uh, the secret police. And uh, shortly after I was baptized and I was active in sharing the gospel among, amongst my schoolmates and even the teachers at the high school, I came home one day and I discovered that both of my parents were interrogated, arrested, you know, in two different places at the same time and interrogated. And uh, I, I remember the, the time when my father returned home and uh, saw me be scared at that time. And so he went to his library and just gave me uh, one book that he had there. It was in German language, but I was fluent in German at the time. In fact, English is my fourth language. So, <laughs> And he said, read this book. And it was uh, Richard Wombrandt's book, 
in God's underground. Mm-hmm. And he said, read this book, it will encourage your faith. And I can uh, say that after Bible, this is the second most important book I ever read in my life. Mm-hmm. And it has changed my perspective on persecution. When I read about Richard Wurmbrand and uh, how the Lord was uh, helping him to overcome uh, inhuman beatings and inhuman torture, brainwashing, I stopped being afraid of persecution. And, um, you know, later on I told about um, uh, this book to my uh, new brother in Christ, my schoolmate at the university, you know, who became uh, also a believer in Jesus. And I prepared him somehow for uh, what he could experience as a Christian in communist Czechoslovakia. And he was deeply touched by this book. And we know from the book of Daniel that, you know, the Lord is the one uh, who is setting up kings and removing kings. This is in Daniel 2.21. And so, you know, even though I never believed that you know, the communist dictatorship could ever finish uh, in our country, it has happened in November 1989, and we got freedom back. Um, and uh, for us, those who have been once helped by courageous believers from Western countries who were secretly bringing Christian literature and Bibles uh, into Czechoslovakia. In fact, I got my first Bible when I could ever read and write uh, by, that was uh, brought by Dutch people uh, to communist Czechoslovakia. So when we were set free and we knew that there were still Christians uh, who were persecuted, uh, we founded uh, quite shortly after the fall of communism in Czechoslovakia, we founded the Voice of the Martyrs in 1992. And it has been always a great privilege for me uh, to serve those who are now persecuted because I have once experienced what it uh, meant to be served by others. And I think this is fully natural and I always considered it as a great privilege, you know, and the Lord gave me later on, you know, the uh, fact, you know, the um, opportunities to meet and interview and later on help uh, believers who have not only lost their material things, like houses being looted and destroyed, uh, cars being burned, you know. I met those who have also lost their beloved ones, brothers, sisters, parents, children. But I uh, had a special privilege to meet people who might consider heroes of my faith, heroes of faith, actually, you know, those people who have also uh, lost parts of their own bodies because they didn't want to renounce their Christian faith. And Mm -hmm. from them, I have learned, you know, uh, that they considered the persecution as a privilege from the Lord. That's the way how they understood. And later on, I had this also uh, the privilege to understand it um, from the first hand, uh, you know, that persecution is an essential part of a Christian life. You know, that was what we experienced under communism. And later on, you know, when I had this privilege to serve uh, the persecuted church, I also had the privilege to suffer with them. Goodness. Wow, what a story. There's just so much in there, and I know people will want to read all about it in your book. But you had actually been in Sudan before you were arrested. You you talk about different times that you had been there. When you went the time that finally got you arrested and taken to prison, what was your mission that day? Because you were only supposed to be there, I should say, four days was the length of your yes. visit that time. What was your mission and objective on that particular trip? 
you know, I was supposed to document persecution of individuals as well as uh, whole congregations. Uh, I was supposed to interview one young Muslim background believer student who uh, was supposed to be killed because, you know, it was and it is still a crime for a Muslim uh, to uh, uh, convert to any other religion or abandon his Muslim faith. That is punished still in Sudan with death penalty. And I saw the pictures of this young guy who uh, was um, uh, terribly burned because, uh, he, you know, the firebomb exploded in his uh, hands. Mm. And uh, I was so, um, uh, you know, touched by seeing his picture. And uh, I said I needed uh, to just uh, uh, go and visit him and uh, document his injury so that uh, the voice of the martyrs, could help him uh, practically, you know, in his uh, treatment. And I also saw pictures of church buildings being completely demolished. You know, if you visit the country of Sudan at that time or now, you could see uh, church buildings from many denominations. And, uh, you know, you can see people going in and coming out, and you can easily get the false impression that there is a religious freedom. But uh, it is not, you know. And in fact, uh, you know, those pastors who have been encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission, to make disciples of all people. And it means also from the Muslim-majority people, they will be arrested, interrogated, repeatedly arrested. And if they still continue to do that, they, their churches will be demolished. And that they always find, you know, I mean, the authorities, they always find a reason, false reason to, uh, to demolish their church buildings. And that was what I was supposed to do there. And I have successfully, I would say, accomplished everything what I wanted. The only problem was that I was closely monitored by secret police. In one sense, that was there was no surprise in it. But, you know, uh, when I got arrested in the airport, at first I thought it was just a kind of routine uh, pre-departure check, you know, that I have experienced many yeah. times in other countries like in Central Asia. And it wasn't. It, yeah. Hang on just a moment. We need to pause for a quick break. Peter Yashik is with us talking about his book, Imprisoned with ISIS. We'll pick up the story after this on Janet Meffer Today. As cries for justice ignite our nation, Preborn is quietly and compassionately saving the lives of black moms and babies from the greatest injustice on black America, abortion. Preborn takes a stand in the highest abortion neighborhood in the U.S., Jamaica, Queens, New York. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. In Jamaica, Queens, a predominantly black community, this grim reality exists. More babies are dying from abortion than are being born. Preborn Pregnancy Clinic is fighting daily to save black babies from abortion. Would you join with Preborn and help babies know their lives matter? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this is an incredible story. Peter Yashik spent 445 days in prison in Sudan. He had been over in Sudan trying to help persecuted Christians and ended up being persecuted himself. He tells this really incredible story in the new book, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Peter, before we went to the break, you were talking about the fact that you had been in Sudan for this four-day trip, and then you tried to leave. You were trying to help out you know, the church in Sudan, and you were trying to leave, and you were stopped at the airport, what happened? What did they say to you? You know, they uh, spoke very broken English, and, uh, you know, they just say, Sudan security, follow us. So, I mean, at first I didn't see anything strange in it, so I followed them, but they took my cell phone, laptop camera, video camera, all my equipment, my external hard drive, so everything I had in my computer uh, back. And, uh, you know, they... Uh, as I said, they were uh, speaking very bad English, so I started to speak, uh, you know, other languages that I'm speaking, French, German, Russian. I know that uh, the Sudanese secret police uh, have been trained in uh, Russia also, so they didn't speak uh, any of these languages. But then they called their supervisor who spoke English, and uh, then I missed my flight. You know, of course, uh, I was transferred to uh, the... Uh, headquarters of secret police where I was interrogated for nearly 24 hours Ugh. and that was uh, that was something that uh, when I saw them filling some papers I was quite sure that this would not be a hotel reservation at that time so they took me to the first out of the five different prisons that I went through in the coming 445 days uh, first four months were actually uh, mainly for interrogations, uh, several interrogations by secret police. Uh, and then they brought me before the judge where I uh, heard the crimes that I was accused uh, uh, for. And that was like seven different articles, but two of them, the first like espionage and trying to overthrow the regime in Sudan, uh, I was actually facing death penalty for that. And I have to say that when I heard you know, through the interpreter the death penalty, it was something that kind of changed my uh, uh, view on the whole situation. I realized it's getting really serious. Yeah. And after these, I was transferred to another prison. And then, you know, another four months of very long and detailed prosecution by uh, the prosecutors, you know, preparing the court case. And after eight months, eventually, we were brought before the court. But the court case lasted six months. 
Uh, you know, at that time when we went through the court uh, hearings, uh, you know, it was a kind of a sort of tragic comedy. You know, actually, sometimes the power went off and everything had to be adjourned. Uh, you know, it, it just reminded me some of the political uh, court uh, sessions uh, that uh, they did in communist Czechoslovakia in 1950s. <laughs> uh, but at the end of that, I was sentenced to life imprisonment. Uh, I somehow expected that because the way how they portrayed us to the pro-government newspapers was obvious that they will punish us uh, severely. And my two Sudanese brothers, they were sentenced to 12 years of prison. But, you know, the Lord was in control. And that's something that people who will read my book, Imprisoned with ISIS, um, uh, faced, uh, in the face of evil, will realize from the very first pages of the book, the miraculous way and the supernatural way, how the Lord was preparing me for that time. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was in control till the last day of prison. And uh, that's a wonderful thing uh, to know. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, uh, the same President Bashir who marked me as a criminal that needed to be punished, uh, he was the one who actually pardoned me within a month after I was sentenced to life imprisonment. You know, we read in the book of Proverbs that the Lord is directing the heart of the king like the river or riverbed of the river that in the direction he wants. Uh, I give credit to the Lord and, uh, of course, the prayers of many faithful believers who were faithfully praying for me. And they were not only praying, they were also doing something. They were signing uh, different letters and sending them to various Sudanese embassies around the world. They were signing online petition. In fact, there was one petition organized by the NGO uh, from Spain, Citizen Go, uh, that uh, collected nearly half a million of signatures from all over the world demanding our release. Amazing. And the Lord is the one when he uh, opens, no one can close. And that was what happened. And, uh, you know, till the last moment, I could clearly see the Lord being in control. Well, it's amazing. The whole story is just incredible. Like you said, how the Lord prepared you and how you took every opportunity that you had to share the gospel. When you're talking about being imprisoned with ISIS, though, that's a particularly difficult situation. That's an understatement, really, what you went through because you had these, you know, radical Muslim men who made you what turn toward the toilet when they were doing their prayers. They eventually beat you, didn't they? And and some terrible things were done to you. How did you endure all of that? You know, I, the, the first uh, and the hardest lessons, uh, lesson that I have learned, of all the lessons that I learned during these 445 days, was uh, that the Lord's strength can be manifested in our weaknesses. That's what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians 12.10. Right. When I am weak, then I'm strong. You know, I lost within the first uh, three months, like, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. <sighs> Within the first month, I have lost literally half of my blood through internal bleeding. So being malnourished, heavily anemic, uh, you know, I appear to be at the bottom of my physical as well as emotional strength. And yet in this, you know, when I was really concerned about my mental health, and not that much about my life like mental health, I was praying and asking the Lord, please keep my mind sound. And yet, in this, in this weakness, I was able to share the gospel with these ISIS guys, pray for them, and not only share the gospel with words, but also with my attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Lord Jesus said, 
that we should uh, turn up the other cheek when they beat us uh, into one. And I can tell you honestly, that's not my normal nature, but that was not me. It was Jesus in me mm-hmm. who was able to turn uh, my other cheek uh, when they were beating me. But you should understand that these people were young people who could be my sons, highly educated from various countries. And, you know, like, for instance, one of them was uh, a Libyan guy who, at the age of 12, was a personal bodyguard of Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora. And he was highly respected by all of them. They used to call him a man of sword. Uh, And, you know, I thought it was because of him being a bodyguard of Osama. But later on, when he was transferred to the neighboring cell, I found out the true reason why he was called Man of Sword. He was one of the murderers who beheaded the 20 Coptic and one African Christian in Libya in the beginning of February 2015. A few months later, he shared the cell with me and he was threatening me also. But the Lord gave me this special grace also to share the gospel with him and to pray. And my prayers, you know, Christianity is the only religion that is teaching its followers to love their enemies. We read it in, for instance, uh, Matthew 5:44. But I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. So I always encourage people not to be filled with hatred, you know, when they read my book, but filled with prayers for those who need to know Jesus as their Lord Savior and God. And I also encourage people to pray for those six ISIS members who shared with me the cell, who were slandering me, beating me, and torturing me. But the Lord has delivered me from their midst, you know, when they were just about to start torturing me with waterboarding. And, you know, that was a moment when I had the feeling like Daniel, when he was taken out of a lion's den. The only difference was that uh, we read in the Bible that the Lord has kept the mouth of the lion shut. But their mouths were wide open in shock when I was taken from their midst. And, you know, they could not believe that I was taken. Uh, and that was how the Lord has rescued me and later on used me to share the gospel with many other people in the following prisons. That's just amazing. How do you look back on that experience, having been released a few years ago now? How has it changed you as a Christian? I'm sure there are many, many ways, but if you were to pick one particular way in which the Lord has transformed you. Uh, In Isaiah, I think 48.10, it says, Behold, I have refined and tested you in the furnace of affliction. You know, if you come through any type of sufferings and persecution, uh, it's like a refining furnace, you know. And of course, you know, Bible talks about uh, refining his people through fire fire of affliction. And, uh, you know, there is uh, certainly the main point of uh, uh, putting uh, these pe- uh, us as people into this trial is that, like with the, uh, there's similarity with the precious metals, you know, the, re- the point of uh, melting and refining uh, the precious metals in fire is that they will get rid of everything that is not genuine. So I can honestly say that uh, I got rid of everything that was not genuine in my life. And it's not always the things that you could do and you are not supposed to do, but it's also that you are supposed to do certain things and you are not doing them. First of all, you know, I was also uh, convicted by the Holy Spirit when I realized how people were praying for me. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, people can read about that in my book, you know, how I could... Uh, 
uh, experience the effects of prayers of many people. Uh, so I got convicted, for instance, by Holy Spirit, how often someone asked me to pray for him, and I said, yes, yes, uh, you know, I will keep you in my prayers. This is kind of just a normal Christian social phrase to say, I will keep you in my prayers. But I realized that when I say that, it means that I will fervently for, pray for that person. And I said, I, when I will be released, I will encourage many other people to uh, pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through persecution, because I have uh, experienced the direct effects of their prayers. Oh, my goodness. What, what a lesson to learn and a difficult way to learn it. But it's just an encouraging story. It's a hard story. It's a difficult story for those of us who have never walked where you've walked. But I think that this is going to be a lifeline for Christians in the future. I really do. It's called Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And it's from Peter Yashik. Just so good to have you here, Peter, God bless you, and thank you so much for sharing your story. God bless you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it seemed like there was a little bit more normalcy with that Tulsa rally, although the left went crazy. Oh, President Trump just can't pack it out the way that his campaign swore it would be packed out. And that was true. It was not packed out the way that many people had anticipated. But given the fact that you have a pandemic going on and you have protesters and rioters filling the streets and you have those people show up at the Tulsa rally, it isn't all that surprising that you wouldn't have quite the turnout. But as it turns out, as the New York Post has reported, social media abuzz over the weekend with claims that President Trump's opponents, many of them teenagers and K-pop fans, guaranteed that hundreds, even thousands of seats for the Tulsa a rally for President Trump remained empty by bulk reserving tickets they had no intention of using. And you might have seen Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, super far left socialist, tweeted this out. Actually, you just got rocked by teens on TikTok who flooded the Trump campaign with fake ticket reservations and tricked you, meaning Trump, into believing a million people wanted your white supremacist open mic enough to pack an arena during COVID. So this raises a very interesting question because right away people started raising the issue of election interference. Hmm. I don't know if anything will come of that, but We'll see what happens. At any rate, if you had that situation going on, it would explain why the arena wasn't quite as full as the Trump campaign had anticipated. But on the other hand, while they're focused on the Trump rally and the numbers in the Trump rally, what they're really upset about is the fact that they, you know, the the issue that are going on around the country right now. And let's see, for example, a murder in Seattle in the chop zone. Yeah, there was a shooting in Seattle, one person dead, one person seriously wounded in the chop zone. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about pandemic risks in the chop zone in Seattle. They don't want to talk about the ripping down, the tearing down of statues across America. 
There was a lot of fodder for President Trump to focus on at the rally. I want to let you listen to a little bit of what the president had to say. Let's listen to this first cut here where he talks about his upcoming opponent in the presidential race, Joe Biden. This is cut one. Joe Biden's record can be summed up as four decades of betrayal, calamity and failure. He never did anything. He was a senator. He was a vice president. He was before that something. Guy, you know, what's great. President Trump was tough on this, or he was tough. They complained. Never did anything about it. He's been there for 43 years or 47 years. He never did anything about it. Biden supported every globalist attack on the American worker. Let's make every country in the world rich but ourselves. Well, right. So he went off on Biden quite a bit during the course of the rally. But I thought that was an effective moment to say, well, if Joe Biden is such an effective leader, then why has he not been able to lead in the last 43 to 47 years, as the president said? Now, something else that came up, which I think is very much resonating with a lot of people who are Trump supporters or would be Trump supporters. That was the issue of the Second Amendment. Listen to cut two. They want to take away your guns through the repeal of your Second Amendment as sure as you're sitting there. In fact, he even put the big gun grabber, Beto O'Rourke, who made a fool out of himself when he ran for president. They put him in charge of guns. Lots of luck on your Second Amendment. Just remember I said it. Hopefully you won't have to think back about it too much because it won't matter. Hopefully it won't matter. No, Beto O'Rourke, who wants to give up guns, is in charge of the Second Amendment. Yeah, nobody wants that. Now, the president also addressed the issue of the statues being torn down across the country and the issue of the American flag. This was quite a moment. This is cut three. Two days ago, leftist radicals in Portland, Oregon, ripped down a statue of George Washington and wrapped it in an American flag and set the American flag on fire. Democrat, all Democrat. Everything I tell you is Democrat. And you know, we ought to do something, Mr. Senators. We have two great senators. We ought to come up with legislation that if you burn the American flag, you go to jail for one year, one year. Quite an applause line. Now, this was interesting because the Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, was on with Jake Tapper yesterday talking about the rally. And the hypocrisy is just incredible. Listen to Cut Four. You know, Jake, like so many people across this country, my first response was that I hope that this is a preview for November, uh, that finally people are recognizing that this man is a danger to our country a danger to our democracy, and he should not be the president of the United States of America. That rally was an embarrassment. It was absolutely what the nation does not need right now. He did not speak about healing. He did not recognize any of the racial tensions that are happening across our country. Instead, he does what he always does. He continues to try and divide us and, and really inflames the worst in people. And so I, I just hope that, that this is a, a good sign um, that the country is moving on from him. Let me just comment a little bit on the hypocrisy there. President Trump is a danger to our country. You have leftist rioters taking over six square city blocks of Seattle 
and others trying in Portland to do the same thing. No doubt these leftists will continue to do similar things in other cities. You have rioters toppling statues. You have rioters looting. You have rioters attacking people and killing people, shooting people, destroying people's businesses. But Trump is a danger to the country. Not your base, not the people you support out on the streets. What about justice? If you cared about justice, why don't you care about how unfairly this police officer is being treated in your own city of Atlanta, causing a lot of Atlanta cops to refuse to show up to work? That's a bit of a problem, is it not? But it's Trump who's terrible and an embarrassment. Have you seen the latest photos of the Joe Biden rallies? They don't have to enforce social distancing because there aren't enough people to get within about 20 feet of each other. So that's an embarrassment, but this is what they want to distract you from, is the embarrassment of their own candidate. Now, she goes on to talk about the past, the present, and the future. This one just takes the cake. This is Cut 5. Jake, there are 20 million Americans who are out of work right now. So whatever happened before the pandemic is probably not resonating with the people who are trying to figure out how they will pay their rent and put food on their table. Again, this man has just a complete and blatant disregard for the past, present, and for the future. The fact that he was even in Oklahoma uh, during the Juneteenth celebration, the site of, of the worst racial massacre in this country's history, I mean, it speaks to who he is. No recognition and concern that where we are with COVID-19 and no concern about what it would mean for people who are gathering in these large numbers. He absolutely he does he doesn't get it. And he is giving us the best that he has. And so when you know that over one hundred and twenty thousand people have lost their lives to covid and you dare speak that you have hmm. said, slow down hmm. the testing. You heard you. Well, I just see you heard Peter Navarro say the president was speaking tongue in cheek about that. This is no time to joke, even if it were a joke, which it was not. It was an inappropriate joke. Now, I find that incredible. She's slamming him for talking about reducing COVID testing when his advisor, his trade advisor, comes out and says it was tongue in cheek. He was just kidding. It was a light moment. Jake Tapper even jumped in and said, you know, he was kidding. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because if he didn't literally mean it and it was just a joke, then you can't be as outraged. Correct. And by the way, when you're talking about a disregard for the past, let's go over some of the events. I already mentioned what happened in Seattle. What about the rest of the protesters? Let's see. Let's go to the Daily Mail because we have protesters in San Francisco tearing down statues in Golden Gate Park. Uh, Statues of Ulysses S. Grant and Francis Scott Key were vandalized and pulled down. You already heard about George Washington. Grant, who was the 18th president of the United States, was a Union general during the Civil War. As we know, Key wrote the words to the Star-Spangled Banner. Then you had a statue of a Spanish writer vandalized. You had protesters removing statues of historical figures who owned slaves. Why aren't more people standing out in front of these structures and protecting them from these rioters and these protesters? And you know what? This is a big deal because it's very symbolic. They want to destroy America. This isn't about race at all. Race is the pretext for trying to destroy America. And I think a lot of people who watched the Tulsa rally got a little bit of a reminder that America's worth defending. We're going to come back.
The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound, and even in this time of national crisis, preborn is there. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. No college classes and sheltering in have led to an explosion of unplanned pregnancies. Women are panicked about their pregnancies and wanting to abort. Our crisis line is the busiest it's ever been. Here's Catherine, one of our crisis line operators. Girls are scared and often seek an abortion as an easy way out. Girls are often desperate being pregnant in this pandemic. With your help, we are able to be here for them. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call 855-402-BABY. Thank you. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. When we talk about what's going on in the United States, it's very difficult to see exactly where the trajectory will end up, but we have to follow what's going on day by day by day. And in one sense, it's good that the president held a rally so you could get a lot of patriots together and remind themselves law and order, law and order, law and order. And I'll tell you what, it's not just the leftists, the Marxists out in the streets, tearing down the statues, historical figures, rioting, looting, all the rest. That is bad enough. That is unprecedented, really, the degree to which we're seeing this go on, because the difference now is that it's being tolerated and encouraged by people who were elected to keep law and order. And the fact that the left is fine with dispensing with law and order is a bigger deal than I think many of us can really grasp at this time. But there's something else that went on last week. We, we Obviously, we talked about the Bostock decision, horrible decision, in which the Supreme Court legislated, just flat out legislated, sex in Title VII in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, now means sexual orientation and gender identity, which is insane and, and clearly a violation of the Constitution for the Supreme Court to step in and legislate. But there's something else that happened. Late last week, you might recall the Supreme Court blocked President Trump's effort to end DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Policy, which is 
not legal and Obama put it into place. And we've been talking about this for years. It protects the deportation of roughly 649,000 illegal aliens. The administration's actions were called arbitrary and capricious by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, Senator Ted Cruz did a phenomenal thing. He got on the Senate floor late last week and really not only took the Supreme Court to task for this horrendous decision over DACA, but also called out Chief Justice John Roberts, and it felt so good and was so necessary for somebody in the Senate to say what he had to say. I want you to listen to a little bit of what Senator Cruz said. This is cut five. Today's decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California is disgraceful. Judging is not a game. It's not supposed to be a game. But sadly, over recent years, more and more Chief Justice Roberts has been playing games with the court to achieve the policy outcomes he desires. This case concerned President Obama's executive amnesty, amnesty that President Obama decreed directly contrary to federal law. He did so with no legal authority. He did so in open defiance of federal statutes. And of course, he was celebrated in the press for doing so. Obama's executive amnesty was illegal the day it was issued and not one single justice of the nine Supreme Court justices disputed that. Not a one. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, joined by the four liberal justices on the court. This is becoming a pattern. Well, it is. And and obviously we've seen Justice Roberts do this sort of thing before when you think about the Obamacare decision. Everybody, I mean, I, to some extent, my jaw is still on the floor over the Obamacare decision. It was crazy. How in the world could you have Chief Justice John Roberts not saying that Obamacare was unconstitutional? It was so cut and dried. And that was the first time a lot of us really went, who is this guy? We thought he was a conservative. Now, Senator Cruz goes on to ask, what difference did it make that the Supreme Court justices all had agreed that DACA was illegal? This is cut seven. The majority assumes that DACA, Obama's executive amnesty, is illegal and then bizarrely holds that the Trump administration can't stop implementing a policy that is illegal. Think about that for a second. And in fact, it's even worse. The majority explicitly concedes, of course, the administration can stop an illegal policy. All parties agree, that's a quote, all parties agree that, quote, DHS may rescind DACA. Okay, easy, everyone agrees. DHS can rescind DACA, right? Hmm, not so fast. Clever little twist. The majority says, you know what? The agency's legal explanation wasn't detailed enough. Yeah, you got the authority to do it. Everyone agrees. There's no argument that you don't have the authority to do it. But we're checking your homework and, you know, the memo you wrote explaining it just didn't have all the detail we need. Just a touch more. So start over. So start over. And as I mentioned before, not only in the Obamacare decision did we see this reaction from John Roberts, but we also saw it just a few days ago. This is cut eight. And Mr. President, Chief Justice Roberts knows exactly what he's doing. We saw earlier this week a decision rewriting Title VII of our civil rights laws. Rewriting Title VII, the prohibition on sex discrimination, on discrimination 
against women or against men, rewriting it to add sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, as a policy matter, there are a lot of people that support that. Indeed, legislation to do that has passed the House of Representatives twice. It's passed this body once. But the court just rewrote it. The court just engaged in legislation, plain and simple, as Justice Alito powerfully wrote in dissent. By the way, Chief Justice Roberts, again in the majority, assigned that majority. This is gamesmanship. Chief Justice Roberts knows exactly what he's doing. The fact that elites in Washington don't see a problem with illegal immigration doesn't answer the reality for millions of working men and women who do. And these kind of games ultimately make a mockery of the rule of law. They make a mockery of the Constitution and Bill of Rights. The same ledger domain we saw Chief Justice Roberts do several years ago upholding Obamacare, where again, just with a little flip of the wrist, he changed a penalty into a tax. That's not clever. That's lawless. This decision today was lawless, it was gamesmanship, and it was contrary to the judicial oath that each of the nine justices has taken. Well said, Senator Cruz. I'm glad that he did that entire speech. It was about 10 minutes long and all, but hitting the highlights there is very important because he's seen what we're all seeing, and that is the lawlessness. Lawlessness. The Bible talks about lawlessness. I was looking at some of the passages in Scripture that I think are very germane to where we are right now. We think, obviously, of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Well, in the United States, as we've pointed out time after time, the rule of law ultimately comes down to our Constitution, because in our constitutional republic, we the people rule ourselves. That's different than those who have lived under a monarchy, for example. Um, So this is important not only for us to remember as Christians, but for us to understand those people who have seized six square city blocks of Seattle are resisting the authorities that God has appointed. And even worse, the authorities who were appointed who are going along with it are resisting the Constitution. They're allowing in the irony here is they're allowing this to go on, even though it's completely outrageous and ought to be immediately taken apart and shut down. But President Trump doesn't want to take the bait and and walk into a trap. What happens? What happens? It just potentially encourages people to do it elsewhere. Then you think of first Peter chapter two, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor is supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If you have a loss of law and order in a society, you will have utter chaos and anarchy. You want to see this around the country? You want to see this in your suburb or you want to see this in your small town? You want to see this in the big city where you live? I don't want to see it. I don't think most Americans want to see it, but a lot of people are sitting by and say, or saying to themselves, what am I supposed to do? Pray for your country. Pray for your country. The rule of law is extremely important because God has ordered it. Now, certainly there are laws throughout history that have been unjust. And we've seen the apostles say, we will obey God rather than men. When they are told that they can't preach the gospel, we're going to obey the Lord. We have a great commission. We're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to stop preaching the gospel just because it's against the law. But at the same time, governing authorities are necessary to punish evil to punish evil. That's what 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 are all about. That's why they're there. When governing authorities do not punish evil, you get what you're seeing in Seattle.
And these people were all mad, for example, when medics were called and they wanted them to come to the chop zone and help help out with people who were injured and they wouldn't go in without a police escort and the police wouldn't come. So they were all mad. I said, well, wait a minute. You guys have already declared you're not part of the USA. So what right do you have to call upon foreign entities to come in and save you? Same people who are holding up posters. Oh, we need food. Oh, we need this. We need sweatshirts. We need whatever, tents. Hey, I thought you hated capitalism, and now you're turning around at the first opportunity and yelling at the capitalists, hey, help us. Maybe the United States isn't such a bad idea to begin with, and you guys just need to repent of what you're doing and knock it off and return those blocks back to the city of Seattle and be legally accountable for the, for the havoc you've created. But whether or not Seattle will make it happen remains to be seen. So continue to pray for our country. We've got to go. Thank you for being with us here on Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time.